All right, it's 11 a.m. So I'm gonna ask everybody to mute and to turn off your videos uh, just so that we can maximize bandwidth. I have really horrible internet, so um, we have to keep every morsel. Um, and you should have a big poll right up in the middle of your screen. So uh, answer the poll question, which is whether you would like to uh, take next week to look at the different free and low-cost uh, Bible study resources that are available to you to be able to easily do exactly the sort of thing that I'm doing and sharing with you. So um, it's, it's uh, like I was mentioning to some of the gals beforehand, we're just scratching the surface here. I know it feels like we're going at a snail's pace right now. These are really important stories, and so that's why we're spending the time here. Um, and but we we will speed up considerably a little later on. But um, even as as slowly as it may seem, we're going through this stuff. We are just barely scratching the surface. There's so much more uh, depth there, and I would love for you to be able to discover it on your own. I'd like to show you how to use those tools, and we have a choice of either doing it live where I can show you how to, to use them and point things out to you. Or if you'd rather not spend the class time on it, I can just send it to you in an email. Either way, I'll send it to you in, e in an email um, so that you have the links and the, and the stuff. Um, the, the question is, do you want me to, to walk you through it first? And the reason I want to do that next week if we do it is because we're going to finish up the promises today. So we're going to get to uh, a good break in the story. Uh, and I want to, um, once we start the next part, I would like to keep that momentum um, through the next segment. So this is a kind of a good stopping place. So that poll will show up right in the middle of your screen. And then you can just close it so that it goes away. The, the results are, are recorded and, and the poll, you can just close and it will all go away. So welcome. I am so glad you're here. I, I am so excited about today's um, lesson. And so without further ado, we are going to get started. Alrighty, so you should be able to see that blank slide. And if you, if you don't, then uh, speak up, but you should see a gray slide now. And here we go. All right, so when we left off last week, God had already made promises to Abram three separate times. We looked at those. Abram was 75 years old, and um, let's see, Sarah I was 65, and still drop-dead gorgeous. But her biological clock has been ticking, uh, and she's well into menopause, and still, they have no kids. And I hope last week began to give you a sense of how human and how flawed these people in the Bible were, and that the people who preserved these stories felt it was really important to show us their flaws, to show us how God responds to our weakness and our humanity. They left these flaws in there for everybody to see that, that they, they are people just like us. So after Abram rescues Lot and gets blessed by Melchizedek and goes back to his tents empty-handed, all went well, right? 
he and Sarah I have kids, the land he was promised falls into his lap. Well, no. You probably know by now it didn't work that way at all, right? In fact, 10 more years have passed. Abram is now 85 years old and Sarai is 75. Not only is she barren, but you might say she's completely, quote, dried up. And if you remember, Abram was um, always set up his camp near those large trees uh, where worship happened uh, in Canaan. And it's near these trees that he received those promises. Uh, and I imagine that right now he feels like those great promises look more like this. We, we feel that way sometimes. When suddenly, out of the blue, the Lord comes to him in a vision and says, Don't be afraid, Abram. You, you'll find this is a common theme when the Lord appears. It can be really terrifying uh, when an angel or when the Lord appear physically. But, you know, some commentaries, I know the one, the one that I'm using, the, the study Bible I'm using says that, you know, the Lord is telling him not to fear dying childless. Either way works. Uh, the Lord says, I am your shield. I am your huge reward. And we are in uh, chapter um, 15, just to let you know where we are. We're at the beginning of chapter 15. So what must have gone through Abram's mind at that moment? I think he was probably pretty depressed. It's hard to keep believing these promises under the circumstances, right? And he says, Lord, I have no children. My heir is my servant Eliezer. And the Lord says, no, your heir will be a son, your own flesh and blood. And the Lord said, go outside and look at the stars. Count them if you can. This is how numerous your descendants will be. And Abram actually believed him. He believed God despite all the evidence to the contrary. And it says the Lord counted it unto him as righteousness. So what does that mean exactly? What is righteousness? If I asked you to throw out ideas of what that word means, you might say upright or good or holy or maybe holier than thou, right? Or maybe close to God. It's none of those things. Those are us projecting our modern understanding onto these ancient people. Righteousness in the Hebrew Bible is not a personal attribute. It only has meaning in the context of a relationship. It means you have fulfilled all the requirements of that relationship. You have held up your end of the bargain. And that's important. I want you to make a note of this. You need to always substitute this understanding when you come to the word righteousness in the Hebrew Bible. And know to look at whatever relationship is in view at that point in your passage. Apparently, all God expected out of the relationship with Abram was that Abram believe the promises. That's all it took for God to call Abram righteous. Now then things get really interesting. Even though Abram has believed, he says, but Lord, how will I know I will gain possession of this land? 
Well, that's probably a fair question after all these years, right? And the Lord says, go get a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Well, Abram knew exactly what was up here. This is how contracts or treaties were solemnized in his culture. And he knew exactly what to do. These animals were to be sacrificed in a ceremony solemnizing God's promise. So Abram got right on it. He killed the animals, cutting the bigger animals in half and laying them out to form a sort of aisle. But then he ran into a problem. Custom dictated that the parties to the covenant would walk in between the pieces as if to say, cross my heart and hope to die like this if I should break this promise. But where was God? How was God to walk this aisle? So he sat down and waited on God. Good for Abraham. He just sat there and batted away the vultures and waited to see what God would do. And then something amazing happened. God put Abram into a deep sleep, the exact same word that is used in Genesis 2 when God put Adam to sleep before taking his rib. And it says a terror, a dreadful darkness fell on him. But Abram is still fully aware in his vision. It's a holy moment, him and God. And at that moment, God begins to prophesy. Your seed will be strangers in a strange land where they will be enslaved and abused for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that mistreats them and they will come out with great wealth. You will die in peace at a very old age. After four revolutions of time, your descendants will return here for the perversity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So a word about that last bit. Most Bibles will say four generations, which is a correct translation, but a generation is normally counted uh, as 25 years at a time. It's like normal whenever your first child is born. And the fact that Abram's first child was born, you know, like 100 years late is not a reason to count all successive generations at 100 years each. It just doesn't work like that. A generation is 25 years. And four of those wouldn't add up to anything near 400 years. Um, Another possible translation, um, aside from the revolutions of time that I've chosen here, you could also translate it as four ages. That would also be correct. Or it may be one of those inconsistencies that simply didn't bother ancient writers like it bothers us. Those details are not important to ancient writers. So pick, pick your poison here. Abram also must have been perplexed by this part about the Amorites, um, but he would have known who God was talking about. You see, the Amorites are renowned in the Hebrew Bible as giants. I'm not sure all of them actually were giants, but these are the folks descended from the Nephilim we studied in the earlier part of Genesis. And Abram had run into them before. Remember Ur, where Abram lived originally? And remember King Hammurabi of the Eye for an Eye Law Code, who ruled Ur from his seat in Babylon? Well, Hammurabi was an Amorite. And after his death, the city of Ur rebelled 
and Hammurabi's son recaptured and sacked it in 1738 BCE. This is a historical fact. And it is entirely possible that this event is what prompted Terah and Abram and Lot to leave Ur and go to Haran. The timeline would totally fit. They may have been fleeing the Amorites. So to tell Abram there was going to be more trouble from the Amorites would not have surprised him, nor would it have been good news. 400 years is a lot of suffering, even if it all turns out well in the end. So when God stopped prophesying, the strangest thing happened. Abram, still in his deep sleep and dread, saw a smoking fire pot like one you'd have charcoals in and a burning porch, torch, or possibly shards of lightning pass between the pieces of the animals. Was that God? To find the answer, we have to look elsewhere in scripture. Many years later, Ezekiel, one of the major Hebrew prophets, had a vision in which he saw the throne of God, and his vision is recorded in Ezekiel chapter 10. Do you remember um, what the Ark of the Covenant looked like in Raiders of the Lost Ark? Here's a kind of a little clip art picture of it. And we'll read about the Ark of the Covenant later in the Bible. It does come into the Hebrew Bible later, but it was supposed to be a representation of God's throne. And see those angel-looking things on top? Well, those aren't angels. They're sometimes called seraphim because of how they look, but most of the time in the Hebrew Bible, they're called cherubim. We say cherubim in English is how we pronounce it, and it's the plural of cherub. But these are definitely not sweet, chubby little babies with wings. These things are terrifying. And here's what Ezekiel saw in his vision of God's throne. I looked up and I saw a throne of lapis lazuli, that was above the space over the cherubim. And the Lord told the man standing there, go in and fill your hands with burning coal from among the cherubim. So there's clearly burning coal there beneath at the throne of God, at least in Ezekiel's vision. And there's another place in the Bible where another major prophet, Isaiah, also sees the throne of God. And this time uh, it's recorded in Isaiah chapter 6. I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above him were seraphim calling, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The earth is full of his glory. Woe is me, I cried. I am brought to ruin, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I have seen the King, the Lord. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongues from the altar. He touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Like, wow. So that's two major prophets who saw hot coals in their visions of the throne of God. And those coals we see here in Isaiah purify and atone for our shortcomings and lack of holiness. That is amazing. What, what a God we have. Remember that God's fire always purifies. We will see that all the way through the Hebrew Bible and into the New Testament. It's another thing to make a note of. 
So anyway, back to Abram's vision. This fiery pot, coal pot, seems consistent with both Isaiah and Ezekiel's visions of God's throne. It's a pot of fiery coal straight from God's throne, from God's presence. And Abram, without a doubt, understood this fiery pot to be God's holy presence, accepting and sanctifying the sacrifice of these animals. The vision ends with the Lord promising to give Abram all the land from the river of Egypt, which I assume is the Nile, to the Euphrates. And then he names the inhabitants of that area who will be driven out. And we'll come back to that list uh, when the time comes later, later in the Hebrew Bible. So that should do it, right? When Abram wakes up, he'll go back and tell Sarah, I, and all this will come true. Nope. Unfortunately, Abram and Sarai get themselves into another major scrape. So apparently, while they were in Egypt, Sarai acquired an Egyptian slave named Hagar. And since Sarai is now 75 years old, she figures the only way for Abram to have a son is to have another wife. So she gives him Hagar as his second wife. And it's more of that cultural sexual morality in the Bible that we might think is appalling. But God, again, did not bat an eyelash over this. As soon as Hagar was sure she was pregnant, she began treating Sarai as if she were unimportant. And clearly, in Hagar's eyes and probably in the eyes of everyone else, whoever bore Abram an heir was the most important wife. Well, Sarah wasn't having any of it. She complained to Abram, but Abram washed his hands of it and told her, do whatever you want with Hagar. And Sarah and um, Hagar, Sarai and Hagar continued to fight. But Hagar, after all, was Sarai's slave. And without Abram protecting Hagar, Sarai was able to abuse Hagar so severely that Hagar pregnant and alone, ran away, heading towards her homeland in Egypt. And before long, she, came, she found herself in the Negev, exhausted. And there in her misery, the Lord met her. Actually, look at chapter 16, verse 7 in your Bible. It says, the angel of the Lord met her. That is a special phrase. That phrase, every time we see it in the Hebrew Bible, signifies the Lord is appearing in a physical form. And this is not it. No wings. Angels in the Bible do not have wings ever. Cherubim have wings, not angels. And they are not simpering. And they are not female looking, at least in the Bible. You know, the first thing an angel usually has to say to someone, do not fear, as in don't run away. I know I'm scary, but I'm not going to kill you. The angel of the Lord, however, rarely seems to be as scary as a regular angel. I think that's fascinating. He usually looks like a noble or other important gentleman. In this case, he asks Hagar what she's doing. And when she tells him she's running away, he tells her to go back and submit to her mistress. This is one of the passages the pro-slavery faction in our own sordid history used and abused 
to prove that they had the God-given right to keep and own and abuse slaves. You have to be really careful about letting these ancient cultural norms dictate how you treat people today. Just because it says it in the Bible does not make it right. These are flawed people. So when somebody quotes the Bible to you, you and it doesn't sound like what you know about God, just put it on the shelf and then go and do some research. The next thing the Lord said alerted Hagar that this was not an ordinary man. This was God himself, because you see, the next thing he did was he started to prophesy. Your descendants will be too numerous to count. You are pregnant and you will name your son Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. Ishmael is a form of the word Shema, which means here. The L on, his, on the end, you know what L means? That means God. So Ishmael means God hears. He will be a wild donkey of a man against everyone and everyone against him. And there Hagar named God. God allows himself to be named by a fugitive slave and a woman at that. What an honor. She named him Elroy. You are the God who sees me and said, for have I not seen after he saw me? And I think she was saying, I see, I get it because I have been truly seen. And so she went back. Now, Ishmael is born when Abram is 86 years old and then nothing, no more children at all. 13 more years pass. Abram is now 99 years old and Sarai is 89. That's really old, even by their standards. And then the Lord appears to Abram to make the final set of promises and to complete the covenant. Chapter 17 is the final summation of the promises. And surprisingly, it's in the form of a suzerainty treaty. These are treaties that were used back then between a king and a vassal. I've included a bonus worksheet in the study guide to help you figure out the correlations on your own later. It's totally something you can do by yourself. But for now, I'm just going to tell you the story. The first statement is pretty much the entire thing in a nutshell. Most translations say, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. God Almighty is a new name for God. The Hebrew name is El Shaddai. Scholars have fought long and hard over what this means exactly. And in the breakout session, one of your choices um, of what to talk about will be to dig into the ancient meaning of the Hebrew of El Shaddai. And the results will likely shock you if you choose that option. And this word blameless in some translations, it will say perfect, walk before me and be perfect. Yeah, right. This is Abram we're talking about. But the word here can also mean whole. That is actually the ancient root of the word, and I think it is a much better choice. Walk before me and be whole. This is what God does. This is what happens to us when we walk with God. 
all that was destroyed in us is restored and we are made whole simply by being in the presence of God consistently. God is not demanding the impossible of Abram. He's not asking him to be perfect. He's offering an unimaginable blessing. He says, draw near to me and be whole. And here are the provisions of the treaty. Your name is now Abraham and your wife's name is now Sarah. You will be the father of many nations and Sarah will be the mother. I will, whoops, I will be your God and the God of your descendants forever. You and your descendants will possess the whole land of Canaan. So far, this is all God's part. Next comes Abraham's part. Every male in your household, both family and slave, must be circumcised or must be cut off from the community. That's it. That is all Abram had to do. Get circumcised, one and done. Just bear the sign in his body that he belongs to God. And that's not really unlike the mark on Cain, remember? Cain belonged to God even though he was a murderer. And Abraham belongs to God no matter how many times he messes up. This is not your typical ancient deity. So what does Abraham do? Naturally, he falls on his face before God, of course. But then when God tells him that he's going to father a son at the age of 99 and Sarah's going to have a, ba a baby at the age of 90, Abram can't help it. He laughs. But then he straightens up and says, come on now, God, how about you just make Ishmael into a great nation? And God says, well, I'll do that, actually. But you and Sarah are going to have a child by this time next year. And that child will be the child of the promises. And by the way, be sure to name him, he laughs. And that, my friends, is how Isaac got his name. He laughs in Hebrew is Yitzhak. That's how you pronounce Isaac in Hebrew. And Abram, Abram, Abraham now, and 13-year-old Ishmael and all the males in Abraham's household were circumcised that very day. I have one more wonderful thing to point out in this story before we go to our breakout sessions. Here is how Abram's name is spelled in Hebrew. Now remember, Hebrew reads from right to left. A-B-R-M. They didn't write the vowels in Hebrew until much later. The vowel sounds are those dots and dashes above and below the letters. So we're just looking at the original consonants. A-B-R-M. And here is Sarai's name, S-R-Y. And here is God's name, the Tetragrammaton, Y-H, W or V. They're both the same letter in Hebrew, H. Now look what happens to Abram and Sarai's names when God changes them to Abraham and Sarah. An H is added to Abram to become Abraham. The meaning really doesn't change much, if at all. Scholars really, many scholars don't think it changed it at all. The Y in Sarai's name is changed to an H, which again does not change the meaning of her name, only the spelling and pronunciation of it. And look, God took the H's from his name and added them as part of theirs. 
And ever after that, the Lord referred to himself in the Bible as the God of Abraham. And after Abraham's descendants were born, God would identify himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he would say. God gave Abram his name, and he took Abram's name into his own. It was, I think, the very first covenant, marriage, if you will, in which the groom took the name of his bride and vice versa. We will find lots of marriage imagery in the Hebrew Bible to describe the relationship with, between God and his people Israel. But this, my friends, was the wedding ceremony. And so now it's your turn. In the study guide, I've given you three options. Choose one of them. Uh, and of course, if you get done early, move to the next. Option one will help you see the Ishmael story from a new perspective. If you choose that one, cover over the second question while you talk about the first question so it doesn't influence your honest discussion. The second option is to talk together about what has changed so far in your understanding of God and of the Bible and of anything else that has struck you in this study. It's just a chance to just kind of debrief on all this. And the third option is to dig into that new name of God, El Shaddai, and see what surprises you, you discover. So um, do you have any questions? I'm going to stop my screen share here. If you have any questions, now's the time. I'm about to let you pop into your um, breakout rooms. All right, here we go. All right, everybody's coming back in. Um, and you have the poll results should be there on your screen. Uh, it looks like um, more people didn't want to spend class time than did. So I will um, honor that. And probably, I think, I was thinking what I might do is um, just prepare a video, like, offline and send that video in an email along with the links to the resources and, um, and just kind of do it that way. Probably won't be this week. This week is really busy, but I will get that done so that you have it. So I am super I excited. Add, Pardon? I want to vote. We had 15 minutes to this class, so we can have a half an hour in our breakout group. <laughs> <laughs> there is so much to talk about, and I am so excited to hear what you guys chose. And I, what I'd like to do is go from the bottom up on the, on the options and start with, who did, who did El Shaddai? Tell me about that. So our group did El Shaddai. Um, one thing, if you look at all those scriptures, it's just like that continuing reminder of the promise. And if you put it with what you talked about today, how he took his name into their name, their name into his name. Um, and, and despite the idol worship, um, of Jacob's daughters-in-law, despite, despite all of it, that promise remains, despite those human flaws, that promise remains. Um, and it's also a beautiful, merciful picture of um, how, how um, 
much we have to contribute even when we feel old and dried up. Yes. So for the folks who didn't choose that option, would you tell them what the ancient Hebrew for meaning of El Shaddai is? <laughs> yep. <laughs> Two dried up old breasts. Yep. And in that option, what I, at, what I did was I laid out all the verses in Genesis that use that title and asked you to um, read those verses in the context of understanding what El Shaddai actually meant in, in ancient Hebrew. Um, did, does anybody, did anybody else do that or do you have any other um, observations about what you saw in those verses in relation to that meaning? Well, we touched on a little bit in my group, and I, I have a, a fairly ancient Ryrie study Bible that mentions uh, Shaddai being derived from uh, the word meaning mountain. Does that does that comport with the the breast breast thing? The um, mountain is a uh, is is uh, mountains are often associated with the concept of breasts. But if you look at the last verse in, um, that I provided in the handout um, that actually mentions breasts and womb, the word for breast in Hebrew is shad. You know, um, that's not the, the word for mountainous har. It's a different word. Um, but people do like make the leap and assess, scholars have, I mean, I think the bottom line for me is that scholars read El Shaddai and said, couldn't, God couldn't have meant that. He meant something else. And then started to associate it with other things. Um, and that's where the, I think the whole mountain thing comes in. Um, there's, uh, and, and clearly the, the church fathers thought it was, he's, he must mean omnipotent or God almighty or something, you know, um, and uh, but certainly, if you any of these options that you guys did not choose your, in your group, go back and do this work on your own to see what you think. Yeah. So, what the the El Shaddai actually means? I'm asking this. I'm not stating it. Is the God who has the power to bring life from the dried up womb or milk from the dried up breast? That is actually I think what the is name the mean. I think that is the immediate context that title is used in with Abraham and Sarah, clearly. But if you go through and do the study in option three, I think it, it begins to become clear that this is a title for a God who gives sacrificially. This is a title for a God who gives all good things, who nurtures our life to the absolute nth degree and um, every single verse talked about blessings coming from this God um, and and I think it brings to mind the image of a mother who has borne many many children and given them life and nurtured them uh, and stood by them even at her own expense so it's a it's a beautiful beautiful thing did, who did um, option two? Just kind of a general discussion. Nobody? Okay. How about option one? The 
reflections on Ishmael? Our group did um, option one, and um, one of the main things that we talked about in the context of, of this description of Ishmael um, was how the dysfunction of Abraham's family, the conflict between Abraham and Sarah, and how Ishmael must have seen, or of Hagar and Sarah, and how Ishmael would have seen his mother treated and would have felt also rejected within the, his family would create this, this, um, this anger and this hostility, which has persisted between the descendants of Abraham's two sons over thousands of years, even to today. Yes, that's and, correct. And I didn't mention, but um, Ishmael, uh, as when he grew up and left home, went east and settled in the Arabian Peninsula. And that's where his descendants, you know, were. And he is actually traditionally um, a, a, one of the ancestors of Muhammad and is revered in that tradition, as is Abraham and the other prophets. I mean, we, we are all what they call people of the book, of, you know, um, and, and, um, and Abraham is revered as a great prophet. But um, go ahead, Marlene. I just wanted to throw that in there. Continue. Yeah. Um, and um, we, we spent a little bit of time sort of looking at the absolute humanity of all the actors in this story um, that you could take that dynamic and put it anytime in history. And, and that again, the Bible is showing how God worked with really, really human people and really flawed people. And yet we didn't see any evidence that God condemned Sarah or Abraham for taking this option with Hagar, even though there were obviously big problems as a result, um, that he continued to bless. He blessed Abraham and Sarah. He blessed Hagar and Ishmael. He blessed Isaac. There's this continuing blessing despite all of the screw-ups and, and, and not a word of condemnation in Isn't how Abraham and Sarah took matters into their own hands, trying to fulfill God's prophecy since it wasn't being fulfilled. Yes, exactly. And, and I hear people say, well, I never read the Old Testament because God is so mean. And I'm thinking, did you ever read it? You know, <laughs> it, it's the message that is loud and clear is that God loves us beyond measure and is patient with us beyond measure and tries to provide for our every need. And we keep yanking that power back, you know, and he keeps saying, okay, okay. Now let's work with what you've got here, <laughs> you know. <laughs> other, any other comments out of the groups about anything? Yeah, on Ishmael, um, we were looking at how um, none of this is Ishmael's fault, that he's put in an impossible situation. He's the child of a slave, so he's considered a slave, even though he's the firstborn. And that um, God made these promises to Ishmael and promised he would be with Ishmael, but doesn't take Ishmael out of the impossible situation. 
and that the, the parallel with the um, the quote from about growing up as a uh, in a gang infested neighborhood and um, that and just how that gives Ishmael so much more humanity like somebody else mentioned and then so it's um, I will hear you I will hear your misery all of your life you will have misery all of your life and I will hear it and I will not forsake you I will not you know I will hear you I just thought that was amazing absolutely that is so good um, relating that to question two even though we didn't get a chance to talk about it um, I've, I've been thinking about it ever since I printed off my sheet and read the question and I couldn't cover up and not read part two of question one because I'd already read it. Before That's okay. I figured anyway. a lot of people did. Whatever. <laughs> but um, in my perspective of God hasn't changed really um, it, because of this class, but it's been um, made more personal. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I was just thinking, how has my understanding of God shifted? A lot of times, and this isn't me personally, but it can be on occasion. A lot of times we look at God as this big entity out there somewhere. And the one thing that has really been made obvious to me through every class we've done so far is he's not this big whatever power out there somewhere the the man upstairs or you know he's real he's personal he's the god of abraham he's the god of gail he's the god of shirley he's the god of marlene he's not just this this pie in the sky someday you know it's personal it's all about a relationship and all the way through all of these stories so far that's the main thing we've been talking about is relationships and not just relationships with god but relationships with each other and um you know putting things into perspective and somebody earlier and i don't even remember who it was said something it might have been in our group um gladys said something but about um, putting it into perspective as to putting yourself in that other person's shoes. That's not the words they used. I can't remember the words they used, but not judging people, just not to be quick to judge people, but to wait and, and think about it and put it into perspective. Because we could be very harsh on Ishmael and the entire Arab nation if we look at it from a human perspective or from our perspective. But if we look at it in the human, in the, in the actual human perspective, in the perspective of the context he was in and the situation and, and it just changes your whole view on why he bitter. Uh, Julia used the word or Julia used the word bitter. Um, he had a reason to be bitter and and I think it was Marlene said he had an emotionally distant father yes. and, and then was observing all this with his mother's and his other the stepmother or whatever you know um, being at odds you know his his half-brother's mother 
being at odds with each other all the time. And so he's growing up in this, this mistreatment and this, and emotionally, and he became bitter. And it just, man, it just put it all into perspective. It's, I'm sorry, I'm rambling, but I'll shut up. I think it also with LGBTQ stuff as well, um, that, you know, we talk about judgment and like Gail keeps saying, you know, these imperfect people and, you know, here we have like a triangle relationship and, and you know, different, different ideas of sexuality and moral, sexual morality. And, um, you know, growing up, there was a lot of judgment, a lot of judgment on um, everything, like <laughs> being from my background in Christianity and still a Christian, but um, I've just learned so much about, you know, God isn't actually judging. God provides for people um, who, like, he provides for Ishmael, right? Like, he doesn't say, oh, let's cast him away or something. Like, he is going to give him uh, lots and lots of descendants. And I think that we judge, like humans judge. And we look at this and we say, oh, why doesn't God just, like, you know, turn that one into like blow them up or something, get rid of that one, you know, like he's bad and stuff like that. God, God just loves and he's, he's walking with us. Um, and it, it is, it's teaching me a lot about looking at what I've been taught in the church in a very conservative church about judgment, but then stepping back and saying, actually, I never knew that God loved women so much that he would say about the breasts, like he would actually be speaking through a female um, experience like that of the dried up breasts and having children and nurturing them and stuff. So I think it's beautiful, personally, as a mom of a gay child. It is. And a female. Yes. Yes. And, and I think the, we have seen so much of the feminine nature of God and of the respect for women, letting Hager name him, you know, there's just been, and, and incorporating Sarah into the blessings by name specifically. Um, that was not done back then. Women were a non thing, you know, women were property and, um, I just, I am, I'm pleased that you're beginning to see the breadth and the depth of, of, of what God is offering us as humans, offered them and offers us. And we are out of time. So uh, this is the end of class. And I am certainly glad to stay on and, and chat some more. But thank you for being here.